On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, there in that upper room, during the supper, he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And then after the supper, in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And in that way, our Lord Jesus established a brand new tradition, a new ritual. We call it a sacrament for his people, for his church. And he commanded that it be done in remembrance of him regularly. Now this must have seemed very strange to the disciples. What was the meaning of this? Why add this to the well-established traditions of the Old Covenant? But Jesus gives a clue. He gives the code. Because in that same upper room, the Lord Jesus also spoke to his disciples near the end before they went out to the Mount of Olives. And he said, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. That's Luke's Gospel, 22, verse 37. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing his disciples to Isaiah, to Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. And he quotes from very near the end of that uh, passage. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And what the Lord Jesus was doing was giving to his disciples the code, the key to understand this new ritual of his body and his blood. And what he was also saying is that this Old Testament passage has been for me a key to understand my assignment here. Now, I'm going to be reading Isaiah 53. I'm going to be reading it in its entirety. And then I'm going to be looking at it in a summary fashion. I'm looking at it from uh, six different perspectives, briefly. Jesus' assignment, his uniqueness, his suffering, his substitution, his participation, his success. Now, when we think about the Lord Jesus, Luke tells us that he grew as a child, as a young um, adolescent, as a young man. He grew. He grew in his wisdom, in his stature, and in his wisdom, and in favor with God and man. He grew. He was fully man, our Lord. I don't think he came to this earth with a 
complete understanding of just exactly who he was. I believe that in order to be our substitute, he had to walk the life of faith that you and I are called to. He had to study the scriptures. He had to trust the word of God. He had to obey it. He had to claim its promises. He had to throw his confidence and his uh, destiny on the giver of those holy scriptures, on God. Now, he was given extraordinary insight, and he was given the spirit in a way that none of the rest of us are, John says, without measure. But he was also given something gloriously precious. You see, when God set the, his system, his plan of salvation in mode, he not only promised that there would be the seed of the woman coming to uh, crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, but he did more than that. He actually set a, a program for that seed so that when Jesus finally came in the flesh, he could mine the Holy Scriptures. And we see this in, uh, particularly in uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. There are a number of passages there identified as the servant songs. They start with uh, chapter 41, the first four verses. It goes on into, there's another one in uh, chapter 49, and then one in chapter 50. But the, the main one, the powerful one, the one that Jesus refers to, is this one, starting with chapter 52 of Isaiah, verse 13, and going to the end. And I believe that our Lord must have deeply meditated, studied this passage, and uh, it defined his action in his ministry, and most especially here at the end of his passion. So I'm going to read that right now, and then we're going to look briefly at these six points that I've got. First, the text of Holy Scripture, the Word of God. Behold, my servant, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many na nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his death, soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In this text, we see these six different aspects that defined for our Savior his agenda. Let's look at the first one. His assignment, his title, his calling. What is it? Servant. Servant of the Lord. He's called to obedience. Servants do the will of another, not their own will. Jesus always obeyed. He wasn't like Moses when God told him, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to take my people, to deliver my people out of Egypt. And Moses finally says, send someone else. He's not like King David, wondrously blessed by the Lord God of Israel, who fell grievously into sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He's not like Elijah, who after that successful encounter on Mount Carmel ran to the cave and the wilderness and pouted, it's enough, take my life, I want to die. No. Jesus faced the horrendous assignment that the Lord gave him, and we see his willingness to be the servant, as in Gethsemane, he, after a mighty struggle in which he says, Father, if it be 
possible, take this cup from me. He submits, saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He took his assignment of being the servant, the Lord's servant, our servant, to heart in a way that no other human being has ever done. Second, I want you to notice his uniqueness or his solitude or his singularity, his singleness. Throughout this servant song of Isaiah 53, the servant's distinguished, he's separated from the many. This is especially true in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're suffering right now as a congregation not being able to meet together during this uh, during this crisis, this virus that's segregating us. It's highly unusual. It's temporary. But there's a sense in which our Lord's entire life on earth, he was not understood. He was alone. He couldn't really share fully his calling even with his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, whom he took to Gethsemane with him. Remember, there's sleep there in Gethsemane. Remember earlier, their misunderstanding. He just could not fully explain until his assignment was accomplished, the nature of his calling and his assignment. He bore the loneliness of that call in a way that is remarkable. Third, his suffering. That's what this passage emphasizes. That's how it got named. The suffering servant song. We see this suffering throughout the entire uh, poem or song, we see it most particularly in what is actually at the core, the center. If, this, if we can identify five stanzas in this uh, poem, the center one would surely be verse four through six. And we see these words identifying his suffering, griefs, sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised or punished, wounds, and the iniquity of us all laid on him. His suffering was not just, though, there at the end as he underwent the passion of crucifixion, the agony in the garden, and then the trial, and then 
the actual crucifixion. Before, it says he was despised. He was not esteemed. He was rejected. So this suffering was social as well as physical. But the suffering is emphasized here. But it's not just the suffering, which was unto death, the suffering that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he uh, poured out his soul to death in the last verse. This suffering also is explained in this passage. And this is why it's so relevant that he gives this passage to his disciples as a code that they might interpret the Lord, the, the way that he gave them the bread and the cup to remember him. The code is explained in what we might call the fourth stanza and the fifth, but the fourth it looked like, to the outsider, it looked like he was uh, being punished by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement brought us peace. His wounds enabled our healing. There's a substitution here. That's my fourth point. This substitution, which is the central theme of the middle passage and is expanded uh, further in the fourth stanza. See, this kind of substitution was familiar to the culture of Isaiah it was familiar to the culture of Jesus, the religious institutions. This kind of substitution was institutionalized in the temple altar and the offering system. This kind of substitution was called an offering. More specifically, in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we read about his soul makes an offering for guilt. So it's a guilt offering that's being spoken of. In Leviticus chapter 16, um, unpacks some of the guilt offerings that were um, prescribed uh, by the Lord for the temple worship at the time. The animal substituted for the sinner. But how can that be? And this brings me to my next point, my fifth point here in this homily, our Lord Jesus' participation. It's not just that he was substitute, it's that he participated willingly, actively participated to be our substitute. One of the words that's used in uh, is in, in verse 4, to speak about the suffering, is the word afflicted. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
That verse, that, that same word shows up in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. But there's a little difference in the original text that's not ably uh, reflected in our English translations. In the second occasion, he was afflicted is reflexive. It's not just that he suffered affliction, but that he willingly, actively participated in the affliction. In the words of the uh, commentator Alec Motier, uh, we, we understand here that the, our Savior had a clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness in which he approached and accepted what happened. The servant's tongue and mind were alike disciplined to say an unequivocal yes to injustice and to a death he did not deserve. One of the ways that's expressed here is his soul makes an offering for guilt. The soul, the center of the personality, is willingly submitting to being this guilt offering. Another way that it's expressed, perhaps a little more uh, uh, clearly, is in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His silence there in the home of the high priest as the Sanhedrin gathered in the middle of the night uh, to examine our Savior. His silence there with the accusers aggravated the high priest who uh, complained that Jesus wouldn't respond to his accusers. But his silence wasn't total because when the high priest put him on oath, to explain just exactly who he was. Was he the Messiah or not? The Lord Jesus broke his silence and spoke precisely the words that were necessary, the words that the Sanhedrin wanted in order that they might condemn him and send him to Pilate for execution under the Roman authorities. He spoke when it was needed to bring about his execution. He didn't speak when his execution might have been averted. And his silence that so aggravated the high priest baffled Pilate. Pilate couldn't understand why he didn't respond and pushed him on it. But then later, when Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Our Lord gives what Paul calls in the pastoral epistles the good confession and admits to precisely the charge that would enable Pilate 
to condemn him. This man claims to be a king of the Jews. He is therefore a terrorist. He is therefore a threat to the Roman powers that be, and he is to be crucified. In other words, our Lord Jesus was silent when he had the opportunity to clear himself and he was, uh, he spoke. He broke his silence when it would contribute to his uh, execution. His participation was willing. His participation is actually necessary for the kind of substitute that really is needed for a sinner. The sheep, the bulls, the goats that were used in the sacrificial system, they all went mute to death. They all went unreflective. They all went without any kind of understanding about what it was they were doing. But we have a substitute, a savior, who went willingly. We have willfully sinned against God, and we have a savior who willfully submitted to the chastisement that was due us. Let me move on to my final point here from this text. I want you to see here our Savior's success. I want you to see that the servant of the Lord was successful. This passage starts that way. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Other translations. Behold, my servant shall prosper. Now what we have here is a Hebrew uh, phrase or, or verb that uh, carries two meanings that are expressed independently with act wisely and prosper. Some prosperity is not uh, the result of wisdom, but of, uh, you might say, good luck, fortuitousness, opportunities that were there, and uh, they were met in a way that it would almost have been impossible not to be use them. Uh, and, and have prosperity arise out of them. Sometimes when we act wisely, we're not successful. But what this text is doing here, the servant of the Lord is doing, is he's acting wisely and that wisdom will bring success. That's what's being talked about here. Our Savior, as the servant of the Lord, came to his task with deep, profound wisdom, and he accomplished the task. 
This accomplishment is twofold. One is, there's the passion. At the end of his life on the cross, the final words, according to the Gospel of John, were, it is finished. His task was accomplished. It was successful. This is spoken of in the end of the uh, Isaiah 53. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knows that his, the atonement was successful. He knows that his sheep have been ransomed. He knows that the assignment that the Lord gave him there in his passion to be lifted up that was accomplished. But the second aspect of his success is his ongoing task of gathering from the nations. There's a very strange uh, passage in the 15th verse of chapter 22, part of this servant song. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What might that mean? That word is taken out of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant cultic uh, practices where a priest will take water to cleanse something, take the blood from the altar to uh, uh, sprinkle. Uh, Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant upon the people of Israel there at Mount Sinai. Uh, the priest might take oil and sprinkle it on uh, another priest uh, to be or on a king to be and anoint him. What is being spoken about how here is how the Lord Jesus will cleanse and set apart and sanctify a multitude of sinners for whom he has just died. Our Lord Jesus referred to this in that high priestly prayer that, uh, that he prayed just before he went to the garden. And he said, for their sake, I consecrate. For their sake, I sanctify myself in order that they might be sanctified. This sprinkling that is spoken of here in Isaiah 52, verse 15, is the setting apart the Lord Jesus did and is doing throughout this earth now. It's the ongoing task of gathering from the nations, the many for whom he died. It's spoken of here in, at the end of chapter 53 
where God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the onslaught of our Lord's victory. He's gathering his people from all nations, taking them out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into his kingdom of light. Are you part of that kingdom of light? Isaiah 52, 13, God says, Behold my servant. Have you looked at Jesus, your servant, a God's servant, and submitted yourself to his work of substitution? Have you asked that your sins be laid upon the Savior? Pilate, speaking there outside his judgment hall, after he had had Jesus scourged, brought Jesus out, trying to get him free, trying not to send him to the cross. And Pilate said to the assembled Jews there, Behold the man. What do you see when you what do you see by with the eyes of faith when you hear these words? Behold my servant. Or you look at the one about to go to an execution. Behold the man. Do you see the one who bore your sin? My substitute. Behold the one who took my guilt upon him. And with the eyes of faith, knowing that he could not be held in the grave, but would be raised again on the third day. And with the eyes of faith, do you see the risen Lord Jesus? And do you say, not just my substitute, but my Lord and my God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we indeed see the servant of the Lord as you, our Savior. You determined to fulfill that assignment with your entire being, to willingly submit to what it called you to do, the crushing of your, the, the Father, the crushing will of the Lord of all the earth. And now may we also see you as the risen one, the risen one in whom the will of the Lord is prospering. 
because you acted wisely. Because you are acting wisely and calling sheep from many nations to be the children of God. May we see that with the eyes of faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.